Last week we started the study of this letter to the church in Thyatira. And we saw that this church is a sinking ship, isn't it? Many sections of the church were so fraught with compromise it was in an inevitable dive into complete corruption. In fact, we likened the church in Thyatira to the sinking of the Titanic. The Titanic was built so that four or five compartments within this long, large ship could actually be compromised, perhaps at the bow or at the back or in the middle. Four or five compartments out of the 16 that existed on the ship could be compromised and it could stay afloat. But when the Titanic actually struck that infamous iceberg, six compartments were compromised and they knew once they discovered that, that all hope was lost, the ship would actually sink. The church has a number of different, what we could refer to as bulkheads. Those are those large steel walls inside of a ship that's meant to be watertight. And as if there's a compartment that's compromised and water begins to come on, those bulkheads keep the water from going throughout the ship. And I think we've been comparing the church to a ship like that. And we've said the church has a number of these bulkheads that would keep the floodwaters of compromise from sinking the entirety of the church. But the reality is when too many of the sections of the church, when too many of the bulkheads and the sections have been compromised by the floodwaters of compromise, it's hard to keep a ship afloat. Hard to keep the church from sinking. So we're thinking of these various aspects in this letter to Thyatira that we see in the latter part of chapter 2 as different bulkheads that are designed to keep the flood of compromise at bay. So how is it that a congregation is to avoid the corrupting flood of compromise that would eventually bring down the whole ship, the whole church? We began looking at seven different bulkheads that are designed here to keep compromise at bay. We began last week with the very first one, and that is we are to consider the true king. That's how Jesus describes himself in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And we've seen Jesus do this in every single letter so far. He begins by presenting this exalted view of himself. It's tied to that original vision that we see in chapter one, but each introduction to this letter and each description of himself somehow is reflective of the particular problem or need that this church has and if you would concentrate on Christ and the nature of Christ in the right way in an exalted way it keeps compromise at bay and we saw last week that Jesus refers to himself here as the true king who is divine he is the true son of God it's a reference to Psalm 2 and the divine son who's going to rule all the nations of the earth. And he sees the truth of everything and everyone. He has the eyes that blaze like flames of fire. No compromise can be hidden from him. And we, we also saw he's holy. We see that in his feet. They're like burnished bronze. Nothing stains him as he walks among the filth 
as it were, of the churches, and as he walks through his holiness that burns in such blazing glory begins to impact those among whom he walks and makes them holy. If we would just concentrate on the person of Christ and who he is, it keeps us from greater or even initial compromise. There's a second bulkhead we looked at last Lord's Day. And that is you must preserve those who are true. You must preserve those who are true. We saw it in verse 19. I know your deeds. This is a familiar phrase that Jesus uses every single time in every one of the churches. I know. And he knows this church. I know your deeds. And what were those deeds? Your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. We contrasted this church, and we will note it throughout. It's different than Pergamum, the church just prior to this one. Pergamum had some who were compromising, but most who were faithful. Not Thyatira. They only have some who are faithful. Most are compromised. But we thank God for the some. Those few who are faithful. In fact, they're the ones that are preserving the church as it were right now from the discipline and the judgment of God. And we noted about those that we must preserve within the church who are true. They have a true devotion. That's their love, a true conviction that's seen in their faith, a true fellowship that's seen in the way that they serve one another. They have true endurance They're persevering through trial. They have true progress because their deeds now are even greater than when they began. And all of that is good. And if you don't preserve the people in the church who are true, you can't stop compromise from flooding the whole of the congregation. Look at those. And hopefully there's people like that that come to mind in our church who are known for these qualities that are good and true You know, sometimes our, our, not sometimes, every year, our elders do this evaluation of our church called a SWAT process. We look at our strengths, our weaknesses, our opportunities, our threats. Maybe some of you have done that before in the business world. And oftentimes we list a bunch of strengths like we did just a few weeks ago. There were a lot of them. A lot of wonderful things going on in our church, our strengths. But what tends to happen when we start having these things, these conversations, is we just focus on the threats and the opportunities and we stop thinking about what's strong and we stop preserving what is good and what is strong and we just focus on the negative and what's wrong with the church or what needs to be stronger. And guess what happens to those strengths when you don't keep preserving them? They become threats and weaknesses. We need to preserve the people among us, encourage them, point out the evidences of God's grace in their life when we see true service and love and fellowship and perseverance and where you see that, communicate it and preserve them and look at them as examples. That's a bulkhead that stands against the flood of compromise. There's a third that we began to look at last Lord's Day and we'll pick up and continue with today. That third bulkhead necessary to keep compromise at bay is you have to reject those who are false. So yes, preserve the true, but identify and reject those who are false. Verses 20 through 21, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches 
and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. This is at the heart of the compromise in the church in Thyatira. In fact, we will see they've been compromising so long that who they brought into membership and who they've installed into leadership had injected falsehood into the entire system of the church. It's beginning to break the church apart. And the problem with this church, as we've seen, is they became too tolerant. They're now affirming and not resisting falsehood. We hear these refrains in the culture today that we need more tolerance and affirmation, but of what? Tolerance of what? Jesus tells this church, I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel. Jezebel was that Old Testament queen of Israel when the king Ahab, the king of Israel Ahab, had intermarried against God's word a pagan woman, and she incited him to do more evil in Israel than any previous king. She was so vile, she looked to exalt herself to such a degree that she began to oppose every single prophet that aligned themselves with Yahweh, and she sought to kill all of them. She would murder any person who stood in her way of gaining the influence and the authority that she desired in Israel. In the church in Thyatira in the first century, the person being singled out here was not likely named Jezebel. She didn't have those kinds of parents. But she had the Old Testament queen's penchant for opposing the true speakers of God's word. This woman compromises the characteristics of, or she comprises the characteristics of compromise, falsehood, that this church should have been rejecting. What were those characteristics? We began to look at them. One characteristic of falsehood that should have been rejected is false leadership. It's noted in the text, and it's very explicit. It is the woman who calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she was holding a position that she should not hold because scripture would not give this position to her. She was a woman in leadership in the church in an area of leadership that the scripture would explicitly forbid her from holding, and yet she does. And not only does she exalt herself as the prophetess, what we cannot miss here is that the church has affirmed her in that. They've allowed that to happen. In other words, the compromise has gone on so long that they don't see a problem with it. She has false leadership. There's a second characteristic we need to look at when we talk about rejecting those who are false, and that is false teaching. If you have false leaders, where does it lead? To what they say, to what they advocate, to what they teach. She's a false teacher. It explicitly says, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray to the point that they're committing acts of immorality as they're eating things sacrificed to idols. You give the wrong person an official position of leadership, then you're going to spread false ideas about God and people are going to embrace them. 
If you have a charismatic kind of teacher and leader in the church, doesn't matter who it might be, people are going to buy into it. And this Jezebel in Thyatira was calling Christians to compromise themselves with idolatry to the degree that they're engaging in immorality. Likely she was telling the congregation that compromising with the trade guilds, which we talked about last time, were these like labor unions today, these trade guilds all throughout the city of Thyatira, every profession was connected to one of these trade guilds and every trade guild had its own patron god that they worshiped and celebrated in a festival and she was likely telling them, go ahead and do it. The idols are nothing. You can go ahead and enjoy all the festival that you want, including the acts of immorality because we know the body is just doing what bodies do. It's just normal. It's just natural. It's what bodies do. It has no spiritual impact or effect. So go ahead and engage in it. But what was Jesus' evaluation of this? No, you're fraternizing with false gods to the point that now you're committing what the Bible calls sexual immorality. And you're doing it because of this teacher who's leading my bondservants, my slaves astray. They don't belong to this leader, they belong to God. You have to realize that when leaders lead God's people away from the word of God and the people began to buy into it and compromise to where now they're engaging or affirming immorality, God takes that personal. We looked at the example last week of Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus described, if you lead my little ones astray, it were better for you that a millstone be put around your neck and you be thrown into the sea. In fact, the church is to pursue church discipline as it were or that kind of interaction with one another where we're helping each other overcome sin, not affirm it. You also remember... Last week, I ended because I had like 10 different passages about false teaching I wanted to read to you. We will now read those. (laughs) Why? The reason why is I want your eyes to see how many places, and we're not going to read all that we could, but how significant it really is for a church not to give in to false teaching. It may be one of the most significant issues a congregation can pay attention to. Now, I get it. Ephesus allowed no false teachers and they were loveless. So we're not advocating a pendulum swing. But the other side is if you don't confront false teaching, and you begin to compromise it to the degree the congregation's okay with it, guess what kind of leaders step into position and where does that go? So I want, I want you to take a, a tour of the New Testament. Again, we're just going to look at a few in light of many places, but just start in the book of Romans. You know, Romans is that great book about the doctrine we like to call the doctrine of justification by faith, which is critical to the church, But I want you to see at the very end of the book in Romans chapter 16, and and we're not going to spend a lot of time in these. We're going to move through them quickly, but I just want your eyes on it too. I want you to see and put your finger on what God says about how the church must deal with false teaching and how critical this is to your spiritual health and the spiritual health of our church long term. Look at verse 17. 
Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, notice this, contrary to the teaching which you learned. And what do you do with them? Turn away from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Turn to the right, just past 1st and 2nd Corinthians and go to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. The churches that comprise this area of Galatia were just being overrun by false teaching. And it shocked Paul. They were young churches, evidently. Look at verse 6, chapter 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for what? A different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some, here's the false teachers, who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? In case you didn't get it, he says it again in verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. It's the strongest word you can use for damnation. How does Paul feel about false teaching? Keep going to the right and turn past uh, what we call the prison epistles of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians turn past the Thessalonian letters and go to 1 Timothy. Later, probably in the 60s AD, it's church in Ephesus where Timothy has been left behind by the Apostle Paul. He's to deal with some issues going on in the church. Let's look at what he's called to deal with. Look at verse 3. Again, put your eyes on this carefully. Verse 3, as I urged you, this is an established church by the way, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Don't listen to this. You say, well, that that sounds so hard and unloving. Well, no, look at verse five. But the goal of our instruction is what? Love. Well, how is it loving to oppose, to keep people from falling into what will destroy them? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. People who have embraced false teaching don't normally do so and say, oh, I love false teaching. They embrace it and think it's 
true teaching and they want others to embrace it as well and they would love to get into a place where they are teachers and they don't even understand what they're doing to the people who embrace it. Paul names them in verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander and if you want to see how serious Paul is about false teaching, look at the next phrase in verse 20, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's what false teaching does. It blasphemes God. Turn over to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Just stay in that book and look at chapter 6. It's like bookends to this book on how to deal with false teachers. That's how important it is. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness this is not just they agree with the doctrinal statement but that doctrine that conforms that leads to that produces godliness there are approaches to the Bible that destroy sanctification also And you have to watch that. If they advocate a use of the Bible that destroys a right understanding of how you become more godly, you must stand against that. Notice verse four, that person doing that is conceited and they understand nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And listen, that's what false teaching always does. It always promises you more than it can actually produce. But it promises you more. Better life, better this, better that. It's always gonna be better. Paul's pretty strong on that, isn't he? Turn to the next book, 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 2 and verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. He names them again. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. They're destroying people in the church by their teaching you have to oppose it in fact elders are called to do that look at the book of Titus the next book just keep going to the right little book of Titus what are elders to do part of their qualification and their responsibilities chapter 1 verse 9 they are holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. What's the role of elders? Take false ideas about God and refute them with the word of God so nobody buys into it. How many false teachers do you think are gonna say, oh yeah, we welcome that? No, it's the hardest part. Some of the hardest parts of pastoral ministry of being an elder is to oppose what people have embraced as truth but notice verse 10 there are many rebellious men empty talkers deceivers especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain what does Paul think about 
false teaching. How severe is it? Keep going to the right. Go past Hebrews. One past 1 Peter and go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2, look at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. They're coming. They'll do it in somewhat of a secret way, perhaps. But they're coming and they're going to be destructive. Turn past 2 Peter and past 1 John. And look at the little book and the neglected book of 2 John. He said, there's even something in 2 John about this? One little chapter, 13 verses, but just look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. What does that mean? Be nasty to false teachers? Throw bombs at people who come to your door? peddling a false god no it's he's saying don't welcome them in like they're a brother or sister in the lord don't affirm the teaching and welcome them in and provide for them and affirm them like they're one of you you cannot do that just one more you said there's more oh yeah just look at jude that's the book just in front of revelation why was the entire book of jude written Well, you can see it in verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I love that. I just wanted to talk about salvation and what we share in common. That's what my goal was, but I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly. It's a strong word there, to fight for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We're gonna see even more of this as we go through the book of Revelation. But do you, do you see It's not just in a few places around the Bible that you need to be aware of. It's like it's pregnant in every single letter. You cannot get away from this. You always must be vigilant against false teaching. The the church can't tolerate ideas about God and his word, especially in the leadership that compromise the truth. And the when you compromise the truth, you compromise people. And I think this is what we have to keep in mind. When people buy into false ideas, they live in false ways that lead them away from God and can destroy any confidence they have in Christ. False teaching sinks churches, friends. 
It sinks churches. It has to be rejected. Now there's a third aspect of what we must reject that's found in this letter of Jesus to the church in Thyatira. You have to reject false direction. So you can't have a false position of leadership. You can't buy into the false teaching that comes from that because where does it lead? A whole direction, a whole direction to the church that has to be rejected. I'm often asked by people, how do I know when to leave my church? Well, it's a hard question. It's a hard question. So if you're thinking about leaving here, no, I, that's a different seminar I just gave a couple of weeks ago. But people ask this all the time. How do I know when it's right to leave? Well, you need to look at what is the direction of the church? Is it so far gone? Is it moving so far down the road that you in your position, perhaps as a common member, you do, you're not the one who can stem the tide and keep it from turning because they've so bought into a false idea that the whole direction of church is moving that way that might be the time when you have to leave. But you have to reject a false direction. Notice verse 21, I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. This is amazingly kind of God. This is a church that has embraced a member that shouldn't be a member and put that member into leadership who shouldn't be in that leadership position and she is leading people astray and God says, but I'm being patient. Which is just like God, isn't it? It's just like God to be patient, not to allow this stuff to spread. I'm giving her time to repent. I mean, even God desires all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, what I love about this, if God is giving her time to repent, what does that say here about how long the error has been and the deception has been going? But also, if he gave her time to repent, that must mean there were people in the church saying, wait a minute. If there was an opportunity to repent, someone must have been saying, this isn't right. And they were the tool of God to point out the error. And the pointing out of the error was not to just be divisive. It was the means of God to say, this isn't all gone yet. And likely it's those people back in verse 19 who were the true followers of Christ and they were remaining firm and steadfast. But evidently this congregation had been so desensitized to the scripture that they're no longer vigilant about the truth and they're more accepting of the culture and everything that it brings in in its own midst. And evidently this false teaching had been around for some time because God was giving time to repent. But notice their conscience is seared doesn't feel, she doesn't feel anything. It's like the church doesn't feel anything when the the conscience is pricked by the word of God. The text says very clearly, she doesn't want to repent. She doesn't want it. It's the Greek word thelo that means she doesn't desire it. There's no desire in her heart for repentance. In fact, she is more desirous of immorality than truth. And righteousness. She's more thrilled 
with what comes from embracing falsehood than she is thrilled with embracing the truth of God. Immorality has now become her passion because righteousness, there's no place for it in her heart, in her desires at all. Her affections are totally given over. I don't think the immorality here is just a metaphor for some kind of spiritual adultery, though that certainly is involved. Probably the immorality means just that. It's some kind of lifestyle that is now embracing what God says is immoral. And the false teaching's been around so long that everybody just says that that sounds right. Like just in the last few weeks, the Roman Catholic Pope has called for all of its churches to affirm a blessing on same-sex marriages. And there's this little outpost in Uganda of Roman Catholic priests who are saying, but that doesn't fit what the Bible says. And the Pope's response is, well, they're, they're kind of backwater and immature. And once they get around to us, they'll, they'll see what we're saying. That's an apostate form of Christianity. You reject it because the whole direction is moving one way. I mean, this is the battle that's been going on in the United Methodist Church, is it not? that's splintering the church now and rightfully so. This is not a debate that began yesterday or this week. This is something that's been going on for years and years. I personally know of that. I was raised in the United Methodist Church and employed in that church was a man who was an open homosexual who was preying on people within the congregation. That was, that was more than 40 years ago. This is not new. That's why the church, you're, you're, people are seeing it. The direction of the church is such that we can't stay in. We have to reject that. You could note that about many of the mainline denominations who are embracing immoral approaches to sexuality because there's been so much compromise with the culture. You say, oh, those, those people out there. Well, don't forget about some Baptist congregations even today who are now softening positions on sexual ethics. The floodwaters are rising. It starts to set the tone for the church. That's a false direction. And there's, there's lots of voices out there. There have been lots of voices pointing out the error. But she doesn't want to repent of it. She doesn't think it's wrong. In fact, she doesn't just think it's wrong. She thinks this is the right course. This is the better course. Once you embrace the road to falsehood, it's very difficult to turn around. Very difficult to turn it around. And if you're not going to reject the people who are false and who are peddling falsehood, you're likely going to end up tolerating them. And once you tolerate them, you sink the entire congregation. This is a difficult bulkhead to, to maintain, but it is so necessary. Let me give you just a quick note on this too that I want to point out in light of the rest of the book of Revelation. This woman, Jezebel, has a number of similarities to another harlot who will come later in the book of Revelation, the harlot known as Babylon. Some believe that Jezebel is just another word for Babylon and that harlot that is to come. There's a number of similarities, but I think there's some differences too. 
In Revelation 2, Jezebel is tied directly to the church in Thyatira, but the harlot Babylon that we'll see in chapters 17 and 18 is connected to the unbelieving leaders of the God-rejecting earth, not a local church, but the whole planet. But that activity that begins in Thyatira, that activity that begins through this woman Jezebel, obviously prefigures what is coming in the future before the Lord returns. For example, in Revelation 14, 8, it's the initial salvo against this Babylon, this harlot, Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And chapter 17 describes this woman who's connected with these nations and their leaders. And maybe there's one central person within the whole superstructure of what becomes Babylon and the great harlot. But Babylon and the great harlot associated with it is described, described in chapter 18, verse 2, as a dwelling place or a prison for the demonic. It's named as an entire city. It's an entire institution. Now, I get it that there's similarities between Jezebel and Babylon. What are we to draw from that, that they're the same? I don't think so. But I want you to notice this. What we fight now and begin to fight in the church regarding false teachers, one day will be, before the Lord comes, will be the prevailing religious view of virtually the entire planet before he comes. The entire planet will embrace a kind of false religion that's similar to the false religion that's beginning in the churches if we don't stop that. The sin we see today in the culture and in the church simply accelerates to a global institutional scale before the Lord returns. So just a reminder, when Jezebel is in our churches, you do understand that's leading to Babylon conquering the world. And what you see beginning now is only going to accelerate. To a larger degree, you say, well, then what hope do we have? You you keep preaching the truth. You keep saying what is right. You be those people of verse 19 who are living the truth out. Let's turn our attention to a fourth bulkhead that must not be breached by the flood of compromise. We find it in verses 22 to 23. Consider the consequences of corruption. Consider the consequences of corruption. Here is where God threatens the church. See, God would threaten the church? Right. Threats. Eternal threats. Damning threats. You say, oh, I hate this part of Baptist preachers. Now, this is the kindness of God. If you think about the threats, maybe you won't go down the road of compromise. It's what makes it a bulkhead. It pries our fingers off of false teaching because you say, ooh, I see where that's going. And I don't want any of that. I don't want to be connected to that kind of consequence. Well, what are these consequences? There are two that I want to point out to you. First one is found in verse 22. It's tribulation. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness 
and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Tribulation is going to be one of the first consequences that comes against a church that embraces compromise to the point it's sinking the ship, sinking the church. Behold, as if this is something so significant, it ought to grab your attention. Don't let yourself go to sleep here. Pay attention to the threats and the, the warnings and the, of the compromise that's coming. Look at these consequences. Behold, I will throw her. I'll cast her down on a bed of sickness. It's hard to know exactly what this refers to, this bed of sickness. The word sickness, if you look carefully in your text, is probably in italics, meaning it's not actually in the Greek text. It's just, I'll throw her on a bed. But that term for bed is often associated with a sick bed. And it was known to be a Hebrew phrase that spoke of being afflicted by God with a fatal illness. Not, this is not... I had a recoverable bout with COVID or the flu. No, this is a bed of fatal illness. If this were some kind of recoverable illness, she just got sick, then that would make her punishment less than what those who follow her are about to receive. No, this is a fatal illness and those who interact with her will receive the results of that fatal illness. Those who are committing adultery with her as the text says those who commit adultery with her likely they engage in the immorality that comes from her teaching they engage in that immorality that sexual immorality that comes from her teaching and what will God do with them he puts her on a bed of fatal illness and those who engage with her it says He'll throw them into great tribulation. What does that mean? Well, it could mean just a significant affliction faced as a discipline or punishment from God on that local church. But it also could refer to what's coming. And what is coming, according to Revelation 7, 14, where we see this same phrase used, great tribulation, John is asking about some saints that he sees under the altar in heaven. And he says, who are these? And the angel says to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they've been washed. They're washed their robes and they've been made white in the blood of the lamb. This phrase is used again in Matthew 24, 21. For then, speaking about a future time, there will be a great tribulation. Well, what kind of tribulation? Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. A kind of affliction, that's the, the word for tribulation, affliction that is so great, it surpasses anything that the world has ever seen, which that's pretty significant, I would say. It's a reason why you can call it the great tribulation it could be what he's referring to I'm going to throw those who interact with this woman's immorality into the great tribulation that future intense period of God's wrath reserved for those who are connected to the world as unbelievers that period is going to be very similar to what's being described here 
The period to come, and we'll look at it in more detail, is a period when nobody wants to repent. They're receiving an affliction for their deeds from God, and they know it comes from God, and they know that their affliction is the wrath of God for their actions, and they have no place for repentance in them. That there's a whole world and a whole society coming where that's going to be the ethos. Revelation 9.20 the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and stone and wood. Revelation 9.21, they did not repent of their murderers, their sorceries, nor of their immorality or their thefts. Revelation 16.9, again talking about this period of the great tribulation, unparalleled affliction. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Revelation 16.11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. You say, well, how is it that if this is a reference to that future time, how would these people in a first century church experience the great tribulation of which they've been dead for thousands of years? And I think that's a good, a good question to ask. Obviously, they can't. Certainly, the kind of people who are like this could one day face that. But here again, I think he's prefiguring something now that is only going to accelerate and become global and become a part of the definition of the culture. What you see now is going to accelerate in a future way, at a future time. There is a way that God could presently deal with the church flooded with compromise that brings a kind of judgment from God that actually prefigures the great tribulation to come. It won't be at that level, but it's pointing that way. In other words, you will likely be able to see the dismantling of churches as they embrace the falsehood of the culture and God begins to pour out justice in temporal ways perhaps now, but what will be eternal ways to come. This is a warning. This is a threat if you continue down this road of compromise that leads to corruption, you're going to be the kind of people who deserve and one day will receive the great tribulation of God's wrath. But it's not just affliction or tribulation that's going to be given to them. It's also death. Verse 23. And I will kill her children with pestilence. Literally, the phrase reads, I'll kill her children in death. You say, how do you kill someone in death? If, they're, if you kill them, they're dead, right? I'll kill them by means of death. It's a word sometimes, especially in this phrase, that's translated as pestilence. That is some kind of viral disease. Revelation 6, 8, under the fourth seal of God's judgment during the great tribulation says this, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with, the New American Standard translates it pestilence but it's the same word death. 
and by a wild beast on the earth. Again, it's mentioned in Revelation 18.8. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, or that is death and mourning and famine, speaking of the harlot of Babylon. I'm going to kill her children with a kind of pestilence or viral illness, a deadly plague, a fatal disease will be the precise tool that the Lord will use during the period referred to as the Great Tribulation and it's directly connected to the harlot of Babylon later in the book of Revelation. That doesn't necessarily equate Jezebel and Babylon but it is saying what you are seeing now will prefigure in an escalated way what is coming under the judgment of God globally on those who oppose him. I'll kill them with disease. Sounds so violent, doesn't it? Remember, I've been giving her time to repent. I've been so long-suffering and patient. There's a point at which the patience of the Lord reaches its end and justice is what is right and what is next. Like after the plagues you saw in Egypt, it ends with the killing of the firstborn, which is perhaps the most harsh element of all the plagues. That just sounds so unlike God, does it? Why? The degree of judgment reveals the depth of the sin, doesn't it? The violence done against the holiness of God deserves what in your mind? I think if you lessen the punishment for opposition to God, it makes a statement about the holiness of God and lessens the holiness of God. I mean, we don't use the death penalty for speeding. And all God's people said, (laughs) yeah. We don't because we recognize it doesn't fit the crime. Well, then let me ask you, if killing her children with this kind of violent disease doesn't fit the crime, what would fit the crime? What level of punishment? And when you give me that level of punishment that's less than this, what have you just said about the nature of God and his holiness that deserves less when it's opposed? But would you notice why he's going to be so harsh? Why there's going to be such judgment that prefigures and even looks like what will escalate in the future? Why? so that all the churches will know. This is interesting, isn't it? So that all the churches will know that I'm he who searches the minds and the hearts. All the churches are gonna know, not just the church in Thyatira, not just the other six churches that are mentioned here, but all the churches. All the churches in that era, all the churches in the era of the church before chapter four and the unleashing of the wrath of God, all the churches will know. And what will they know? There's two sides of God's judgment here that are revealed. They will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. That phrase, the minds and the hearts, goes together. It's all one thought, and it literally reads, I know the kidneys and the hearts. The kidneys, right. I know what's inside you. I know what motivates you. I know what drives you. I know how you make decisions and why you make those decisions. That is, he makes this 
solid, thorough evaluation of all the hearts and minds of the collected mind and motivation of a congregation. I'm the one who knows what drives your church and what drives every single individual in that church. And there's a second side to his judgment. And I'm going to give to each of you according to your deeds. Isn't that interesting? I know what's inside you and I'm going to give you what your deeds deserve. Not just what their motivations deserve, but where do the deeds come from? What has driven them internally? He has such a complete, accurate, and thorough knowledge of each church member's motivations and intentions that he's going to respond to what they produced because of those motivations. This is actually a reference to Jeremiah 17, verse 10, when God said to Israel, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds, which means Jesus saying this of himself is equating himself with Yahweh. The Gospels regularly mention Jesus knew what was going on in people's hearts, doesn't it? Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? That'd be a tough dinner conversation, wouldn't it? You think it's all going swimmingly, and all of a sudden he looks at you and says, why are you thinking evil? And you're like, I was. And he just said it out loud. You remember Psalm 139? Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all and you've enclosed me behind and before. The Lord Jesus is Yahweh God who knows everything that's going on in our hearts. There's not one motivation one thought that he doesn't know. But he knows that of the collective mind of our church too and what motivates us as a congregation. And then we see it's not just what it's in our heart that he judges us according to, but it's what comes out of our actions, our deeds. And this is actually going to be what we see in the end also when God judges and brings final judgment He does it based on what you have done and how you have lived your life. For example, in Revelation 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13 of Revelation 20 says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You see, how, how could this be? Don't separate these two. He knows what's in your heart, and he's going to judge you by your deeds that came from your heart. Where does does adultery come from? The heart. Where does theft come from? The heart, the mind, the affections, the soul that makes, makes you think this is okay to pursue. Your life reveals what you actually believe. 
We all live out our theology and we find out what we really believe by how we actually live. And that's what he's going to judge so that everybody's going to see the justice of God was just. Look with me at a fifth bulkhead that needs to stop the kind of compromise that's going to flood the church. We have to think about the threats and the consequences, but on the flip side of that, we have to persevere in the truth also. This stops compromise. Persevere in the truth. If you're like the people of verse 19, you also need then to be the people of verses 24 and 25. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come. Remember, Pergamum had a few who compromised, but Thyatira has only a few who are faithful. The rest who are in Thyatira, that small group who's like verse 19, and they don't hold this teaching, this teaching of Jezebel, sounds a lot like the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but it's identified with a different person, Jezebel, same kind of idea. If you don't hold on to this teaching, and notice this interesting phrase, the deep things, who have not known the deep things of Satan. If you're the people who have not known the deep things of Satan, what is that? Well, this is not John's comment on the teaching. He's not calling this the deep things of Satan because notice, it's very clear, as they call them, Jezebel calls her teaching and the deeds that come from them, the deeds, this is the deep things of Satan. You say, well, what what in the world is she saying? Oh, I think this is very, very clear. Remember, she's telling these people, go to the trade guilds, participate in the festivals. It's not gonna affect you at all. In fact, Go invade Satan's space. Go know what the culture's doing and invade their space. It has no spiritual ramifications for you at all. You can know the deep things of Satan and not be harmed by them at all. It has no spiritually significant effect. In fact, you'll show how strong you are spiritually if you engage in the deep things of Satan and you come out. Matter of fact, you might even be evangelistic. Can you hear the argument? But there's a few who haven't bought into the lie and he tells them, nevertheless, what you do have, hold on to this like it were your, your dying grasp on, on the precipice of the cliff. You let go of this and you're gone. You hold on like everything in your life matters this point until I come and I, I think that's a reference to the second coming of Christ it's a different word than is normally used for coming it'll be used in chapter 3 verse 3 in phraseology that sounds like the second coming of Christ you hold on till I come you say well these people in Thyatira that would be a long time it's 2,000 years removed Again, we come back to the same idea. You live your life as if the Lord could return at any moment. You live as if the Lord were returning in the next second. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, I'm coming. In chapter 2, verse 16, I'm coming. In chapter 2, verse 25, you do this until I come. It's another statement that believers in the church are to live like he's coming. Persevere. Don't buy into the lie. Stand up for the truth. Don't go with the the way of the culture. It's a bulkhead that keeps you from compromise. Persevere in the truth. The sixth bulkhead that stops the flood of compromise. Anticipate ultimate authority. 
anticipate ultimate authority. This is what Jesus does in every one of these letters. I don't want you to live for the here and now only. I want you to live for what is to come in eternity. That's what I want you to live for now, for what's to come. Not just what you can gain now, but for what is to come. Notice verse 26. He who overcomes, Nikao, the victor, to the one who overcomes all the temptation to compromise, to go with the flow. And he's also described, the overcomer is described here as he who keeps my deeds. The word keep is to guard, to protect. It's not just an external activity. It's, it's a heart that says I want to protect the truth. And so I do everything I can to obey and protect the truth for what it is. He keeps my deeds. It's worth you going back through and looking at all that's said about deeds in this little letter. He knows our deeds, verse 19. Jezebel's deeds bring punishment, verse 22. Judgment is according to your deeds in verse 23. And reward comes to those who keep Jesus' deeds. So Jesus' deeds has nothing to do with the immorality of the compromise. His deeds have everything to do with keeping his word. There's no compromise there. And what happens to those who hold fast? To him, I will give authority over the nations. In verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Now this is where it rounds out what we're, where we began in verse 18. He's the son of God. It was a reference to Psalm 2. And these verses, verses 26 and 27, allude to Psalm 2. To the son of God, given authority over all the nations. Remember, God looks at the nations and he laughs and he gives to his son. Today I've begotten you. I'm gonna give to my son authority to rule over the nations and crush them with a rod of iron. That's why Jesus says here, the father has given me this authority. That's a reference to Psalm 2, but we also hear in that the echo of the great commission, don't we? Matthew 28, I've given you all authority in heaven and earth. And when he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, meaning he possesses all authority, complete authority. The problem is right now, we do not see him exercising that authority that he has been given in the way that he will when he returns to the earth. When he comes back to the earth, he will exercise that authority in that all the nations who oppose him will be crushed and they'll all come into line and he will rule over them. We don't see that going on right now. You see, you're saying Jesus isn't control. No, he's in complete control. Everything's unfolding as he desires it to be. He has and possesses all authority, but he exercises that authority in a very particular and ultimate way when he returns and sits on his throne on the earth. Now what's interesting is that Psalm 2 says nothing about the saints having that authority, only the Son. But here Jesus says to the one who overcomes that authority that my Father gave me, Psalm 2, Matthew 28, I'm going to give to you. And you will rule with me over the earth. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 says we don't yet see humanity, namely under the person of Jesus, exercising that rule in bringing everything under subjection yet. We don't see it yet, but it's coming. It's coming. But here it's extended to all those who are his. And by the way, in Revelation 19, when he actually returns, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Same reference. 
When he returns and comes back to the earth, that's when he rules the nation with a rod of iron and then he gives the saints the authority to rule alongside of him. It's not a new theme, 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we're going to reign. If we endure, if we overcome, we're going to reign with him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? They will have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness sake, because you will have the kingdom of heaven. When heaven comes to earth and the rule of Christ comes, that rule will be mediated by the saints. You can see a reference to it in Revelation 20 as well. I wonder if you ever think on that. Seems like we're getting run over. Seems like everything that we advocate gets overcome. Well, we're not, we're not living right now to see our rule extended. We live for ultimate authority. We recognize, hey, listen, we live in a unique country. Vote your conscience. Vote the way the Bible would tell you to vote. You say, but it's not going my way. Okay, well, the Bible said that would happen. Are you frustrated with the Bible? Well, kind of. Maybe that's because you're expecting all of your good life to be right now. You're expecting you to have your way right now. And that isn't the promise. The promise is he comes back and then we rule over the world with him. You do get it. You, heaven is not something out there away from the earth. We keep talking about heaven as if it's just, well, right now it's out there. But when we experience in its fullness, it's here on this earth. His rule comes to this earth and we rule with him. So why give in to compromise now? Well, it makes it hard if I don't go with the flow. But what future are you living for? What are you living for? So, well, what is this, this other phrase here? And I will give him the morning star. I think it's essentially the same thing. You will live with Christ in the future, reigning with him in the messianic age. Why do I say that? Well, the only reference to the morning star is found in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, where Jesus calls himself, is called the morning star. However, there's an interesting description of the morning star in Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 through 19. And it's the prophecy that Balaam was given, giving over Israel that's a blessing. And it says, a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seth, its enemies, will also be a possession, possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. And who is that? It is the one who is the morning star. Morning star is a reference to the future messianic rule of Christ on the earth. Well, the problem is that here, Jesus says, I'll give you the overcomer, the morning star. Does that mean he just gives himself? Well, yes and no. There are references to the stars of the morning that refer to those who live in the presence of God in both Isaiah 14, 12 and Job 38, 7. And I think what this is saying is, you will be those who live in the presence of God and exercise his messianic reign over the earth. You are going to be the morning stars because you reflect and you actually carry out the rule of the Messiah on the earth. It's simply another way to describe what he said in verses 26 and 27. 
That's ultimate authority. You're going to reflect his reign and rule. You're going to demonstrate that reign and rule when you rule with him. If you keep that in mind, the lure of the culture should be less and less in your affections. It's a bulkhead that stands against it. All right, one last. It's a simple one. You know what it is? Have you caught on yet to this one? Verse 29, pay attention to the scripture. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. What is the Spirit saying? He's saying what he's just revealed in the Word. In fact, this is the ending to all the letters, isn't it? Stop paying attention to what everybody else is saying and listen to the Bible. The Bible, the Scriptures alone. And if you have an ear to hear it, that's where your blessing's gonna come. You wanna keep from being a corrupt church You consider the true king. You preserve those who are true. You reject those who are false. You consider the consequences of the corruption. You persevere in the truth. You anticipate ultimate authority. You pay attention to God's word. Do that and Jezebel probably won't join the church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time of meditating in the word today. And we pray that it prepares us to evaluate our own congregation, our own heart desires and motivations, and to realize that you see and know them all. Lord, we pray that we would turn from sin where we see it creeping into our conscience and our behavior. We pray that you'll help us to resist the kind of compromise that will flood the church and sink it. Help us to keep the bulkheads that you've designed in place so that culture does not define us, but Christ is our ever-defining presence. We pray that when we see the churches that look like that of Thyatira, that they would stand as a warning to us not to go down these roads, not to embrace this approach and to remember that there is such reward in following Christ. Grant us your grace now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.